we are born with a capacity to resonate. Given the conditions, it's easy for us to open and really feel another person. Not just hear them and the words, but really feel them, feel their feelings and their experiences. This is Healing Justice, a podcast bridging conversations at the intersection of collective healing and social change. I'm your host, Kate Warning, and this week we're talking with Relational Uprising. They are a training and coaching institute that supports social movements to foster a relational culture of embodied support, interdependence, and inclusion in their organizations and communities. We're speaking with Cedar Landsman and Lucien Damaris, and they'll be sharing with us about individualism as a system of oppression, heroic cultures of organizing, indigenous traditions of healing in Ecuador, repairing rupture, suspicion, and judgment, and bridging as a form of increasing our ability to hold complexity in our movements. Something that I really love about their framework is that it is incredibly applicable to building social justice organizations and movements, but it's also super applicable just to our everyday relationships. Um, So this episode really has something for everyone. And if you're listening to this right when it comes out, we want to send an extra special thank you to those of you that we met at Allied Media Conference in Detroit last week. It was truly amazing to be with media makers for social change from all over the world, um, and also to be there as a volunteer team of so many folks from all over the country that put their effort into producing this podcast for you each week. If you want to get a little glimpse of our journey at Allied Media Conference, you can check out our Instagram at Healing Justice, and on Facebook, we're at Healing Justice Podcast to get a glimpse of the action and some of the stories. And we also made a custom zine that we were giving away at Allied Media. It includes the work and words of folks like Autumn Brown, Maurice Mitchell Brody, Caitlin Metz, and Marsha Lee. And so if you want access to the PDF of that zine so that you can print one for yourself or print a whole bunch for your community, join our email list at healingjustice.org and we'll be sending that out. And hey, if you'll be at Common Bound in St. Louis this upcoming weekend, come and join us for our workshop on Saturday morning. It's called Healing Justice and Economies of Collective Care, and we're co-hosting it with the local 4A project. So let me tell you a little bit about Cedar and Lucien. Cedar Landsman is a heart-centered community organizer, a trainer and facilitator who has worked in the field of social justice for over 17 years, from the global justice movement to the low-wage labor movement to the fight for a just and fair food system. And Cedar is a white Jewish woman with Indo-Caribbean family. Lucienne Damaris is a somatics-based healer, an educator, and a consultant, training in the U.S. and internationally for the past 15 years. Lucienne is formally trained as a Guild-certified Feldenkrais practitioner of somatic education, is a California-licensed acupuncturist, and a nationally certified body worker. And Lucienne identifies as mestizo and is from Ecuador. You'll hear them refer a lot to these concepts of bonding and resonance throughout our conversation. And in some ways, this conversation is kind of like a part 
two to episode 20 on this podcast, which is when we talked with Mark Fairfield about relational culture and about resonance. These three people work together very closely and have developed out a lot of the frameworks that they share together. And Mark, when he spoke with us, taught us about the concepts of bonding and the practice of resonance as building trust and relational connectedness as an essential resource of our lives and of our groups. So if you want to, you could feel free to pause here and go back and listen to episode 20 first, or you could revisit it later. But just know that it's foundational to adding on to the concept of bridging and radical inclusion that Cedar and Lucien will be teaching us about here. It's almost like they're layering our capacity to bridge and radically include on top of the skill that we are already developing around relationality and support. And just like in the concept of resonance and story sharing, Cedar and Lucien will model here their tradition, which is about really deeply sharing stories by going into great depth around their personal stories here as we open. I really love listening to them. Uh, they're people who really model what it is to care for one another in complex ways and uh, hold all of us together in our movements. And so I'm excited to be sharing their voices with you. So let's listen in. Here we go. Hi, Lucien. Hi, Cedar. Hello, Kate. So to begin, I would love to just hear a little bit about who you are and any personal story that really drove you to this particular role that you're playing in the work. Maybe we can start with you, Lucien. I uh, was born in Quito, Ecuador. I'm a healer by trade. And I think the, the, the journey to relational culture comes from the journey of my own life of navigating through the fact of having to change in the context of my culture and experiencing some of the the impact of what it means to be dislocated from a community that uh, you belong to to bridge into a community that might be an important step in your life as i say you know healing has been my passion uh, that's how i came into this work that's how i came into uh, healing justice and activism I uh, started by um, being introduced, really, growing up in Ecuador by uh, mostly the, the passion of my mother for uh, respecting the indigenous knowledge there. Uh, she kind of like introduced me by just bringing me as a kid to healers and, and treating most of my, my uh, childhood um, ailments with indigenous uh, healers and curanderos. So, you know, at 16, I felt like that was my call uh, mm. for a variety of reasons for what it meant to me in terms of relating to the indigenous, feeling like I was uh, what we call in Ecuador mestizo, you know, mixed race, and, and feeling also a sense of, just a clear sense of relation with them. I feel like uh, I navigated a lot of uh, pain with my extended family because of this, because I respected too much the indigenous in a racist country, mm. and because I, I, I honor uh, with my mother and my family uh, how they perceive the world. and. Most of my extended family, like the rest of the country, uh, felt like the indigenous were ignorant, the indigenous were um, superstitious, the indigenous were people that needed to progress and be assimilated into who we were. You know, it's interesting, you know, the, the, the path of choosing that, choosing, you know, I want to become a healer and, and I want to become a healer that uh, honors and learns from uh, the indigenous cultures of my country. And that was a big step. One, because I feel like it introduced me to a way of seeing our organisms that we are not familiar in, in our Western model. 
I, I think that for curanderos and for indigenous healers, healing means always a physical process that connects you to the soul of the universe. Mm. And an ailment is seen as an, an imbalance, not just in your physiology, but in the social construction and in the, in the ecology itself of, of beings. Um, so this like meta uh, definition of, of health kind of like was very formative in how you know, I was, I was relating to the body and how I wanted to do, how I wanted to be helpful. And I uh, had the fortune to, to leave uh, in the Amazon with the Shuar for uh, almost a year and, and apprentice with uh, Quechua Hiller in Quito also for almost four years. And, you know, these this, this practices are very different from what we're accustomed. You know, they, they are using their, their bodies in a very different way and they're putting you in contact with, with, with ecology in ways that we're not familiar. Like, for example, the use of body fluids. There's a lot of saliva use. There's a lot of blood use. There's a lot of parts of animals that sometimes are used in the healing. So all these things can, like, you know, be quite antagonizing for somebody that is educated in, in our world. But, you know, this is just to give you an example of the intimacy in which they're mm. embedded in. You know, like saliva, for example. Saliva being a collective resource for healing. And for us, it's like, whoa, this is something we, like, kind of move away by our hygiene standards. And the other thing is, like, the love. The, the relationship of love from, from uh, apprentice to, to teacher. I feel like uh, I remember, you know, many times being confused and, and not knowing, you know, what was happening in the healing room with uh, Maria Mawa. And, um, you know, she would laugh, you know, sometimes she would crack the egg, uh, she would rub an egg and somebody's and crack it to diagnose what was going on with the person. And, you know, she would see all these things in the egg that I was like, where do you see that? <laughs> so those kinds of things, you know, and uh, and she would always laugh, you know, we'll be like, don't worry, you know, you 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 don't have to worry about learning. You just have to be here because the more, the more I love you, the more you learn. So these kinds of values of love, of connection, of deep, deep intimacy with your body and, and a sense of meta, a sense of, uh, you know, healing is much more than just you, the individual. Something to do with the community of your associations and the, and the community and the ecology as well. Then, you know, for circumstances of uh, economical opportunity and, and just, you know, the nature of what it is to grow up in the third world, I... Um, you know, ended up in a situation where migration became like the thing that I needed to do in order to pursue my education or what I wanted to do in life, because Ecuador had become um, just a very difficult place to live for a young person like me. And, you know, I had uh, some family, some extended family in the States already that had migrated many years before, and that actually had no relation. So it was a, there was an interesting sort of conversion of events that my extended family came back to Ecuador to reconnect with my dad's family and that became the, the bridge for me to end up in LA mm. from all places. Mm. You know, that shift was when I when I came, you know, I came very excited, but it sort of like with the desire of like grabbing that opportunity to, to do something uh, with, with that uh, that will that will make a difference. And of course when I left I didn't know what would be the things that I was taking for granted. So that's the first sort of big clash of, wow, context, culture. And one of the big, biggest difficulties was my relationship with other bodies. You know, I came from a culture where affection and physical touch is a thing. <laughs> you know, mm. you actually kiss in the cheek to strangers. Um, 
you know, you say hello all the time, you say goodbye all the time. There's like a highly uh, awareness of entering and exiting uh, the social field and making sure that people understand that that has happened with, you know, uh, affirmation and with um, warmth to know that the relationship continues. And that was something that I completely lack here. And, uh, you know, that was the first thing I was like, oh my God, you know, like there's this whole new thing that I can't do, you know, and, and, and noticing, you know, the, the uncomfortable situation of my body wanting to do that and having to restrain it and the pain of that. And then, you know, I feel like just to continue what I had already um, started, you know, like I started to try to find what, what healing meant here, you know, if I wanted to keep pursuing that, what, what it meant here. And, uh, you know, I kind of started following two traditions that I found right away. One that was or claimed to be grounded in, 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 in an indigenous shamanism, but kind of like a, a modern synthesis by uh, a leader called Carlos Castaneda. And another one was um, the world of uh, Chinese medicine. And quickly enough, there's uh, a clash between the the culture that I had kind of like carry for me, like the one that was sort of like grounding me in what and why I wanted to become a healer. Confronted with this completely different context in which you've been trained to become a professional in a market mm. uh, was pretty clear from the get-go. You know, the, there was like, you know, some nice classes that were talking about the, the, the Chinese philosophy of the past, but then there was another class that was about, you know, practice management and doing business, you know, and, and, and how contrasting the values of one and the other will be, you know, just... Mm. So it was interesting, you know, to find sort of a tradition just like the traditions that have been exposed in Ecuador, to find traditions that now, because of the difference in context and the professionalization of it, were disposed of all love, of all emotionality, of all connection with the real thing. Mm -hmm. And it was just a thing in a book. So that was stark. Where is the embodiment? Which mm -hmm. is what I was looking for, mm -hmm. that intimacy with the body and the ecology. But, you know, all these experiences were interesting in the sense that I was exposed to the culture of individualism. I call it the culture of individualism because for me it was very clear, coming from a collectivist culture, coming from a culture where you, you put your needs kind of like in sec second place and you make sure that, you know, people are being uh, received well, host well, love well, to come into the opposite where you're like, actually, I need to affirm myself more and, you know, the collective mm -hmm. is second. It's actually not new, it's just old, but you, you have to differentiate mm -hmm. yourself to compete in the market. So you have to maybe invent a new word and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So really seeing this like stark of like, holy shit, is this what I became a healer for? Mm -hmm. You know, to become a professional in the market. There's something about the system that also needs to change. Yeah. Because we're just like, you know, treating the people downstream. But mm -hmm. this market is the very thing that is you know, creating disease and ailment for people. So how do we do something about that? Yeah. And as a healer, where is um, the way to do that? So meeting Cedar as an activist was like a very powerful moment in, in, in that shift. Mm -hmm. But maybe you, you want to tell a little more before I continue. Cause... Yeah, sure. <laughs> I can sort of bring my path up to that moment as well. <laughs> Where to start? I guess I sort of came of age as an activist in the global justice movement. And I, I grew up in Boulder, Colorado, which is actually a sort of center for a lot of um, interesting strands of sort of healing work. And also a pretty homogeneously white town, progressive or liberal, you could say. 
and I grew up in a multiracial family. My mom's second marriage was uh, to my stepdad, who's an Afro-Carib from the St. Thomas Virgin Islands. And then I have two younger siblings from their marriage. It was just very formative for me and my family to grow up um, in a very homogeneously white context in a progressive slash liberal space that has a lot of blindness to the sort of pernicious racism that exists in that in that context. And we were, in my family, I think agitated and exposed to the dilemma of uh, how that impacted our family members <laughs> who did receive the, yeah, the brunt of of racist sort of prejudice, both in the school system and, um, you know, violence from the police. Anyway, so I was sort of agitated about about social justice, but didn't actually know that much about it. <laughs> and I was lucky to have gone to college. I went to Hampshire College in Western Mass, which is known for being a, a pretty activist kind of centered campus. Um, but at the time that I was there, the global justice movement was really kind of taking off in the U.S. Um, and I had these very formative experiences of going to mass protests against the World Bank and the IMF. I went ab abroad in sort of my pursuit. I sort of simultaneously through my studies started studying social movements and social movement history because I wanted to understand what am I in now? What have I found myself caught up in? Um, and also studying sort of neoliberalism and capitalism and, and sort of uh, what's, a, what's sort of the global context that we're in now. So that was very formative for me in both seeing the power of seeing so many people in the street participating in that, participating in direct action and civil disobedience and having experiences of just the collective, just the profound power of um, so many people together, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, uniting many, many voices on mm -hmm. many issues. That was what was so powerful about the global justice movement was the, the coming together of labor and environmental and um, sort of student organizing and sort of all these strands that were impacted by this. In, in particular, we were organizing around free trade agreements in the Americas, and that also led me to learn from other movements in, in the Americas that also help, helped, I think, me really appreciate just how interconnected all these uh, these movements are and the power of the time that, that we were living in um, participating in these actions. But we also witnessed the kind of fracturing um, internally <laughs> around strategy and tactics, around race and class and uh, dynamics of sexism and racism in the movement and just a lot of really painful dynamics. So I was really exposed to some of those dilemmas of what it means to be mm -hmm. trying to resist <laughs> systems of oppression and destruction um, and, and, and coping with the impacts of those in, in our relationships um, as we're trying to work together. So. A very dear friend of mine, who's a labor organizer, Paul Engler, actually uh, invited me, recruited me to move to LA um, <laughs> in around 2000, I guess that was 2004, to a labor fight in LA to actually go work as a salt, which is basically working inside workplaces. We were working in hotels. I mean, the, the purpose of it was obviously to organize in a place that was, you know, very hostile to organizing. Um, and so we had to 
uh, sort of use this this tactic of of uniting folks very like under the radar before going public with campaigns. It was a context in which I I couldn't really lead with my politics or my ideology. I had to lead with a deep sense of care and mutual respect and 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 deep sort of learning about my my coworkers and what their stories were and 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 to be transformed by them and I I was um, and I really learned the power of relational organizing I think in that context was really that was a deep capacity building experience for me of my own my own understanding of what it really takes to to be in something together for the long haul <laughs> and it was an amazing experience and also a very challenging both physically and mentally and emotionally and time-wise experience of active campaigns sustained over many years and I was like pretty burning out. <laughs> and that's when I met Lucienne. Our relationship really impacted me because I really deeply, I had had a lot of resonance for the sort of heroic organizing ethic, <laughs> the, mm. the model of, of, you know, people are, people are suffering and, and we've, you know, we've got to give it all we've got every day, all day, every day. And, the a sense of needing care if, you know if it's not integrated into the culture of the organizing which in in that context it wasn't necessarily we were more encouraged to go on our own on what free time I don't know <laughs> but to kind of seek uh, care or, or emotional support it was definitely for me like shame inducing to express like okay this is hard I'm struggling right now or I'm having you know and so I think when I met Lucien and got exposed to some of, well, he resonated with some of the actual struggle and and harm that it was to be overpowering my own vulnerability all the time <laughs> through my organizing, physical, mental, and emotional vulnerability and sort of repressing it in order to be able to keep going. Mm. And that really spoke to me. I mean, it threw me into a dilemma at the time, but I think it was a it was also an important turning point in me understanding. Oh, wait, there might be different ways to organize that are important and to integrate and sort of set me on a journey. Thank you. <laughs> it's so fun to hear. I mean, knowing both of your stories to some degree, but also yeah. hear some of these highlights again mm -hmm. because um, Lucien, the the quote that you share from your teacher of "The more I love you, the more you'll learn." is like something that has stuck with me since the first time I heard your story mm. and that I lean on as a resource. And and also, Cedar, I feel so with you when you talk about like the ruptures in the movement mm. um, after some of the huge mobilizations in the anti-globalization movement. Yeah. And um, I'm curious about, I mean, we really want to encourage folks who may, maybe this is the first time that you're listening to us talk about relational culture to go back and listen to um, episode 20 with Mark Fairfield because I know... So much of the work that you've developed with Mark and now and now as yourselves with Relational Uprising is so deeply set upon the, found, the foundation of the need for bonding. Um, and what I'm interested in today is even pursuing further this idea of like, yeah, these ruptures. Like, I would assume a lot of folks listening are like, yes, ruptures everywhere. <laughs> like, what do we do about that, right? And And can you describe a little bit more about like, 
how you see those ruptures happening in our in our culture and and in our movement spaces what do those ruptures look like feel like what are the stories that we tell about them mm. and then hopefully we can move together into some brainstorming of what it looks like to to repair you know we stop here the story also to to kind of like highlight this idea of rupture because that's what um relational culture is about is about bringing uh, and reestablishing that coherence and and and, and preventing further rupture. But uh, I think that the main idea of, of, of some of the experiences that we've shared, uh, at least for me, you know, like it's the moment of, you know, I meet Cedar and the first rupture that I even become aware of that moment, you know, because we also carry these ruptures that we don't even know we have them. Mm. And you need all this resonance to even become mm. acquainted with them. So that first step that, um, you know, Mark sort of talks about in, in, in chapter 20 is, is about that first sort of I listen to you. I ask mm. you your story. Mm. I give the space. I create the conditions to you coming online. And that's actually scarce. It's an opportunity that we don't have anymore, that we cannot take for granted in this culture. And uh, for somebody like me, an immigrant, that's very important. Mm-hmm. Um, that, you know, people that are here are curious, that mm. express, you know, that they might want to hear who you are. And I say this because this is what made me commit to Cedar. Hmm. You know, I had been in the States already for over a decade when I met her. Uh, and um, I realized that day that she was the first person that really hmm. went further into my immigrant experience. And uh, that was really hard and moving. And that's why I have a lot of feelings. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, sort of like a highlight. Hmm. Wow. We mm. don't have this. It's not something we have. It's not something we can take for granted. And is this something we can do something about? We were recruiting each other. I was recruiting Cedar into, you know, sort of like wanting to, to bring more wellness and more balance into her burnout uh, sort of style of life. And on the other hand, you know, I was receiving these like amazing downloads of how much I need to do to like show up for um, the movement mm. and for justice. Uh, and I stay, you know, kind of like in that professional place that in some way was comfortable but also was like something that I thought I had reached for after being in the third world where that felt so overwhelming. You know, that uh, desire to to bridge those two things mm. put us in contact with this amazing opportunity to meet Mark, which mm. also was one of all those other persons that I can say, you know, that very clearly and very emphatically wanted to hear my story. I, you know, tend to believe that I'm an introvert mm. but because I live in Ecuador and because I have this dual existence I know that I'm not when I'm there so it's this interesting way in which like wow you know I I struggle here to to be somebody that comes up but then I come out and then this is really important uh, uh, sort of affirmation of, of, of the value of restoring those ruptures and what it means you know for mm. us individually but also as in the movement. Mm. So it's important this moment when Mark asked this question and asked me for my story because I also feel like I remember the connection with the indigenous and what was the thing that had happened that I wasn't or that I had lost touch with. And I remember, you know, the first conversation of like after telling him my story of like kind of like describing Mark and some of the things that we're saying were so evocative that brought memories of like being back there again and and realizing how much it mattered 
the experience that I had had there, to bridge the experiences that, that these indigenous people were having there to defend their land. Because mm-hmm. um, one part of the story that I can share is that uh, a lot of these people that I share time with have been displaced. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of these teachers that you know I, I honor you know, have, have to move from the places that they've lived uh, for hundreds of years and you know the Amazon has been destroyed. Mm-hmm. And for them healing and healing means um, protecting that resource, protecting that lung of the planet because they know that not only they will be displaced but we all will be displaced if that, that happens. So it was that sort of like, wow, that's what this was all about. Healing has to happen in the movement. We need to be talking about a global healing movement because what's happening is serious. It's not just our individual suffering. It's not just our individual movements. It's not just our organizations. The whole planet is sick mm-hmm. with our human disease of, of this culture of individualism. You know, bonding and the practice of resonance is that first step of like, I hear your experience, I hear those places that there might be rupture, and I mm-hmm. dig out even more. Um, and, and, and I get into this practice of honoring supports and burying supports, which is another way of saying this practice of noticing context, noticing culture, noticing something that we don't tend to notice. We think that things are fixed in a way that that function like a machine. And context is everything. It all depends on context. Things don't repeat themselves because of context. So this practice of unbearing support is also the practice of now we're seeing what are the things that are shaping how things end up organizing. And with that, you know, it's like comes also this 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 attitude of gratefulness of of also being a lot more in touch with our dependency how much we depend and that's the biggest problem in our culture like because there's almost like an antithesis that we're being recruited to confront that because we're afraid to trust people and we're afraid of relation and we kind of have experiences that have taught us that it's not very good to trust relation anyway so being self-sufficiency makes sense and if the culture gives you those conditions, you're going to try to go in that direction more. So so really, like, wanting to reestablish rupture is not in the recipe. You know, mm-hmm. wanting to hear about the context that might have created the rupture mm-hmm. is hard. You know, we kind of, like, get carried away in the first thing that happens and the first thing that we say to each other or, or, or the individual being the one sole responsible for... Uh, an event creating rupture. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, maybe you wanna add there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, um, I think when I when I first uh, went to the relational center, which is where we met Mark and incubated the project that then became Relational Uprising, I heard him really give a a very clear deconstruction of individualism and I had this aha having been made very sort of aware through my experience in the movement um, and through studying movements and just of the ways that we have a profound deconstruction of capitalism you know our our, our movement was sort of built on that and we had an understanding of, of sexism and racism and classism and 
uh, sort of deconstructions of these uh, of systems of oppression and how they play out structurally and institutionally and also uh, in culture and behavior, but never quite a deconstruction of individualism, mm-hmm. of this notion that maturity and development of a human being is in the direction of self-sufficiency and the ways that that is so closely tied to consumer capitalism that the entire culture of consumerism is built on recruiting people out of relationship and into consuming goods of goods and services and that's a that's a culture fundamentally of competition of isolation and of separation and upon realizing that oh i didn't really ever hear a deconstruction of that in all my in all my work as an organizer and all my sort of exploration of of insidious systems of oppression and how they operate hadn't really ever fully deconstructed how that is a system of oppression, individualism, and how it, it, it fuels and is sort of nested in other systems of oppression. And I think that a lot of the ruptures that we were having in the movement actually had a lot to do with not having a real profound value around relationship, <laughs> around dependency, fundamentally a culture of competition, like privileging and lifting up uh, and, and amplifying already privileged voices and or or creating sort of aggressive uh, norms that then became like a culture that felt very unsafe and antagonistic and contradictory. And then sort of being in the movement and feeling like we're all sitting in this dilemma that we're full of contradictions mm-hmm. <laughs> and we don't know how to coalesce and come together around our differences in a way that we can, through high quality, deep mutual connection and understanding, like leverage the diversity and and the complexity into like more power mm. <laughs> and not instead collapse under it and, and um, threaten what is one of our planet's most precious resources, which is social movements, you know? Uh, the presence of social movements changes what's possible in a very stark, very grim forecast of what's ahead for our planet. You know, if we if we can if we can successfully organize and shift direction very quickly, we maybe stand a chance. So that's why you know I, I feel I felt so activated about trying to lift up this both critique of the culture of individualism that I felt zero access in all my work in the movement to sort of a deconstruction of and build some tools. And that's where we came to sort of start working on the curriculum for relational uprising. And the bridging work, the being able to hold complexity at a level that is beyond what our capacity is on our own but is is increased when we're together the the capacity to hold more complexity to imagine and radically include what beyond what we're culturally conditioned to understand or appreciate i mean it's so important that we do that to meet the complexity of the challenges that we're facing 
And our approach to that in relational uprising is one that is about healing and restoring the bonds that make it possible for us to have that level of solidarity, which comes through the resonance. <laughs> that's, that's how we build and generate that resource. It's a truly felt resource. It's not a cognitive resource. It's a sort of felt and embodied resource. So this is a really important distinction here um, because we want to we wanna differentiate between what we call con- cognitive empathy and affective empathy. And, and, and just have a little more uh, insight into the body. This is a very important piece in our, in our approach. Uh, we pay a lot of attention to narrative as the social construction, and then we pay a lot of attention to the body as the physical construction that the two together give us a sense of how we're constructing our relations and, and how we're constructing our entire reality through those relationships. So, so the body is a really important piece. And, uh, you know, this is a good point also to, to talk a little bit about the movement that has brought sort of the body on, on the forefront of uh, what uh, change making and justice means. Because there's also like a little lagoon nowadays about where is it all coming from. You know, there's this word called somatics now that is starting to become popular. And very few people know about the somatic movement or the body movement or the embodiment movement, whatever you want to call it at this point. But this is a movement that started uh, on the 30s, full of like a desire to um, ground uh, authority and truth in the body and, and to find you know, uh, our, our forms of organizations and our forms of governance as humans in the wisdom of the organism. And this is a really important approach that sort of has been erased you know, through the through the 20th century and, and, and the somatic movement itself so like dispersed because of market conditions and professionalization. What was meant to be some something of a popular movement, you know, was, was silo eventually by the market into, you know, professionals having now so many different schools of somatics, so many different uh, strands of somatics and, and the practitioners having a little sense of what is our legacy. You know, what is our connection and what is maybe the language that we should start using to to have some kind of like a unified conversation about this. So the body is a really important thing and I think we're in a very important uh, moment also in, in terms of what we know about the body. You know, science has studied the nervous system in a way that has shaped the way that politics have happened over the last 200 years. The state was really interested in understanding how to govern people and how to control people. So, so, so in a way, all these fields that were studying um, uh, humans and, 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 and the body and the physiology and the psychology were also sort of had an agenda behind them. And that kind of like helped sort of dissolve some of that movement. The body is something that I feel like is our, our, our biggest resource and, and, and is resilient and is alive and is there. So hard to suppress it. So here it is, back again. <laughs> and uh, what's important about the body is, is, is one that in this tradition that we're part of, we call it the Gestalt tradition, which uh, Mark uh, had been trained of, and, and in my tradition is the Feldenkrais tradition, but they all come from you know, a group of people in Europe that were totally confronting what fascism was doing on one side and what, um, you know, sort of estatism, socialism and futurism was doing in, the, in Russia. You know, there was like a group of mostly Jews that had been Moshe Feldenkrais, for example, the, the, the method I'm trained of, was somebody that had been pushed uh, from, from the Soviet Union because of communism. And a lot of uh, the, the Gestalt 
early originators like Laura Perls and Fred Perls were students of all this group in, in Austria. So, so this is important to, I feel like, ground the movement into, because we're in a moment right now where suddenly we're kind of back at the 30s. <laughs> there's fascism and there's nationalism and there's the fear of a socialism that will do something like it did in the past. So these are real fears again. And here there's somatics again on the line. So I feel like it's kind of like a, a, a propitious moment to talk about this legacy again and this, these leaders, you know, like Wilhelm Reich that actually um, try to, um, you know, really change psychology. And this is the 30s, you know, a psychologist and the institution of psychology trying to really push the agenda and saying, hell no, the body is a thing, you know, and he's the first person actually they even used the, the, the phrase sexual revolution. Anyway, just going back to the body, it's important that we know that we're being organized by a story about our body. So what our body is capable of is usually more than what we have been trained to believe we're capable of. And, you know, I'm not going to talk about magic right now, but I'm going to talk about empathy, something as simple as empathy. Uh, we have a very confused understanding of empathy. We, in a way, feel like these, these challenges of, you know, bridging difference is something that we're not equipped for. It's like a really difficult thing to. And we kind of like are like turning that story upside down and say, no, actually what's difficult is to turn off the story that is recruiting you to do this thing that we do naturally as human beings. Our organisms have evolved over like billions of years in the story of life to be equipped with these wired in capacities for empathy and inclusion. So this is huge. This has like huge implications and, and we are born with a capacity to resonate. Given the conditions, it's easy for us to open and really feel another person. Not just hear them as the words, but really feel them, feel their feelings and their experiences. And then we also have this capacity to choose to include them. And that means not just tolerate them, not just tolerate their difference, but really taking them inside ourselves, making them part of ourselves. That difference becomes something that is no longer a difference for us, but something actually that expands us and enriches us. And this is very different, you know, because it requires a different attitude. It goes one from like, you know, just tolerating a cognitive sort of attitude, like you have knowledge, you understand the person, you know it's different, you've been educated to be polite, but you're not feeling value and affirmation for that person yet. You're not even feeling desire yet. And those are the things we're looking for. Like Sita was saying, the depth. Depth is about something different. And bridging is about inclusion. And we say radical inclusion is about really taking that person in. And we say, you know, good measure, like Mark likes to tell us, a good measure of that is when the concerns of that person keep you up at night. This is huge. I mean, it's... A, it's it's like turning upside down an entire conception of uh, boundaries and an entire conception of dependency or what, what you know, inclusion really is. But we're saying, no, you know, this, this is the thing that humans do and used to do and have done and evolved to do. It's probably the only thing that now we need in order to have this global response. Because we need to coordinate a global response, like Sita was saying. We're in a really, really deep crisis and only a global response of deep relationships of trust is going to do it. So that's why these, these kinds of differentiations of like, oh no, we're not just talking about knowledge here, we're talking about affective life, real feelings, 
and, 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 and we go on that sort of order of like bonding, taking the time to really, you know, listen and resonate with somebody's lives, experiences, and then, you know, entering into collaboration with them. And in that collaboration, we're going to notice things that are different, things that are not like we see it or, or, or we understand it. And that's where bridging enters. Hi, y'all. This is Kate, and we're going to take a quick pause from this conversation so that I can tell you what's going on this summer with Healing Justice Podcast. So in the next two weeks, we're going to be wrapping up season one. It's been a long season. We've been together for eight months already, and it's time for us to take a summer break for some reflection, restructuring, and discernment. We are absolutely a commitment to continuing to share this resource with you, but are open to a lot of possibilities about what exactly that looks like and how we sustain that and who does what and calling people into this community. And we also are excited about the idea of giving you a summer break because we have put out a lot of content. We have over 30 pairs of conversations and practices here. And often when I meet folks out in the world, they they sort of lead with apologizing for being behind on the podcast. Um, and there is no behind here, let's say that for sure. There's absolutely no expectation or need for folks to listen to everything. But if you're finding these resources helpful, we wanna give you a little bit of space to actually spend some time on the ones that you haven't had time to listen to or the practices that you sort of saw and realized, oh, that's a really good idea. Um, Sounds like something I need, but to haven't had the time to actually sit down and try or try multiple times. And so we're excited about the idea of taking this summer break to give you some space to do that. And one of the ways that we'll be really kind of fueling and grounding our discernment process over the summer about what season two should look like is by asking you. We want to ask you about your experiences using the practices that we've shared here. Any stories of ways you've tried them in your own life or out in the world. Um, How these conversations and stories have impacted you. What concepts have been most useful and what do you want more of? Um, And we also want to ask you how you want to show up in this community. Already, a bunch of the people who are um, contributing to this podcast through audio editing, through donations, through uh, advice and feedback um, in so many ways, through digital support, um, those folks are just people who come forward and have said, how can I help? And we really want to welcome all of the talent and expertise and skill and sheer heart and desire to contribute from our listener community into the fold. And so, I mean, it's it's kind of hard to figure out how do we have a conversation with folks, you know, at the time I'm recording this, we have over 220,000 downloads of the podcast. That's a pretty big room <laughs> and there's people listening all over the world. And so in order to sort of convene some of that feedback, your stories um, and also your uh intended contributions of saying I might want to participate in this way we're doing that thing which is creating a google form Um, it sounds a little boring but we really want to welcome your heart and your uh 
personality and uh, your, your whole showing up and telling us some stories via this form as a way of collecting this feedback from our community. So the form at the day of this uh, release is not posted yet, but if you're listening later, you'll probably see a link to it in the show notes. And also the best way to find it is to join our email list. So you can go to healingjustice.org and right on the homepage, there's a button, uh, salmon colored about joining the email list. Join there because when there's key moments like this, if you want to be kept in the loop as to what's going on in this community, the email list is how that happens. Yeah. So go to healingjustice.org, click on that button, join the email list, and we'll be excited to send you the form so you can let us know how this work has been impacting you, what you want more of, and any ways that you want to show up in this community. Thank you so much for being on this journey with us. And let's dive back into the conversation with Cedar and Lucien. So I am so curious. I'm tracking with you both so hard on like everything that you've explained on the global level, on the embodiment level. And, and part of what I grapple with is like, I have been in so many, you know, organizations, teams that are so deeply aligned in like a thousand ways and yet rupture persists in like painful ways and and along many different kinds of fault lines, like fault lines of oppression, fault lines of power imbalance and organizational structure, fault lines of personality, fault lines of like our own personal histories and and preferences, right? Like all of these, like Mm -hmm. the traumas that we Mm -hmm. carry that trigger one another. And like we can have so much resonance, so much togetherness on so much of who we are, and yet like the the ruptures are so mm-hmm. deep. I'm really trying to just land in my own ex- experience in an organization or a team. Like when these moments of rupture happen, what does the bridging process look like? Mm, good question. <laughs> so our approach is to slow way down. Mm-hmm which is really challenging, especially for folks who are organizing in a situation where there's a lot of urgency. Mm-hmm. We, I think, try through our work to cultivate a sense of urgency around the need to slow down <laughs> uh, because it is urgent because of the amount of time lost down the line in, in rupture and in conflict and in chaos. Whereas um, we find that if we can slow down and and go through some of the steps that bring us back into resonance that that help us bridge across some of these fault lines, as you said, then we stand a chance of not losing all that time <laughs> that we lose when things collapse and fall apart. So, mm. and some of that has to do with you know the the rupture happens when there's like a lot of complexity and not enough support to hold it. We need the resource of resonance in order to do the bridging work in a humanizing way that results in us feeling more connected, more enriched, and sort of transformed by having fully been impacted by one another's perspective and grown together a new story of us. (laughs) And now, out of that, through bridging, that we sort of need in order to keep going, right? If we're not going to fall apart. So... Um, what we do in the bridging practice in our training is first people have to be grounded in 
resonance practice and bonding and context building for one another's stories and where we're coming from and why we're, you know, what have our challenges been? What are our values that guide our work? That's some of the stuff we do in bonding. That is a resource for then going into what we talk about in bridging which is going through things like uh, reactivity and dissociation. What are the ways that we are either reacting and sort of speeding up our process and becoming reactive rather than you know, reflective in, in the way we collaborate with one another? Or what are the things that are making folks actually not be able to deal and check out? So, so how are we going into those states, sort of being able to recognize them? We're really supported by the social neuroscience Uh, We sort of created some tools for translating what we know about what's happening when we're in those states to actually figure out how to recognize them and and build support around them and stay connected. Um, Oftentimes when we see people reacting, and sometimes people react and actually cause harm, right? Or we see people dissociating, we see people checking out, Mm -hmm. removing their resource from the group. You know, oftentimes when we see that, we especially in a culture of individualism, we tend to judge and isolate people for, you know, if we, if we especially if we don't understand what's happening there. So, so mm-hmm. in bridging, we, we sort of build resources on uh, how to recognize and, and add more support to situations like that. We talk a lot about appreciation and suspicion and how heavily we rely on suspicion and suspicious inquiry of those around us in a culture of individualism and competition, we sort of lead with suspicion, and our culture uses suspicion uh, as a as a as a weapon of oppression. Who gets automatically appreciated, and who and what bodies get automatically suspected? Um, and so we uh, we really explore like how do we in our relationships apply those in ways that that either foster connection or or break down our connection. We also look at sort of unpacking conflict and really when conflicts happen, trying to map out what is causing this conflict, what type of conflict is it, what is there information, you know, is there, is this a conflict of missing information, is this a conflict of conflicting values, is it a conflict of different strategies before trying to go into the problem solving. We're always trying to cohere a story of us <laughs> and a collective sort of investment in us healing the conflict or the challenge or the rupture mm. and, and sort of building that coherence. And we do that through tools for actually literally writing a narrative of a story of us. We sort of do that, take that from public narrative and do that in a sort of internal sort of emergent way with the group. Yeah, we look at our stories and, and identity. Well, we, we, we have a whole sort of module on looking at Identity is something that's very complex <laughs> and how important it is that that we sort of come to appreciate and understand the ways that the stories of separation create narratives about identities that then inflict oppression on people who carry those identities and how important it is that we come to value and, and appreciate the actual humanizing stories that are actually very intersectional that we each embody and live. So anyway, we just, we, we explore identity and, and sort of unpack it in a way that helps us just like really come to appreciate the fullness of one another's human experience mm-hmm. in the ways that we embody different identities and, and sort of the richness that our, that each of our stories is. 
and and just build complexity and and solidarity in that way. Um, that's a lot of how we how we approach bridging and approach holding groups together in the face of some of the conflicts that come up. Mm. That seems like such advanced work. <laughs> um, I feel like you just named like 10 different things that need to be held like with great mastery. <laughs> you know, one of the things I'd like to ask you both, because you have been now, um, you've known each other for how many years? 12. Over 12 years. Over 12 years mm-hmm. and working together very closely and intertwined in many ways. And um, I would love to hear just a story from you two about what does this look like on the interpersonal level Mm -hmm. in case you've ever experienced a rupture in your 12-year relationship (laughs) um, that you could tell us about just to kind of land a little more of like, oh, that's what it looks like. Yeah, I can tell a story (laughs) from our long relationship. So yeah, so we're partners um, in many aspects. And I guess one story that comes to mind is it was short, shortly after I had finished graduate school, we went looking for a new apartment after sort of getting kicked out of the cheap uh, grad student housing. Yeah, we were we had to go find a new place to live, and we sort of had our, our vision and then sort of our realistic, well, here's the basic of what we need, you know. And one thing that for me was really important was that there was like, some sense of like a garden, you know, a tree or a garden or something. But everything in LA was like super duper expensive. And Luciana and I like profoundly fell out over like our priorities around finding a place. And what it really amplified for us was all these things around class and money. I mean, in the moment, so in the moment when you're polarized (laughs) and you're in profound sort of judgment of each other's process around things, um, mine was very much a like, well, we might not have the money yet, but, you know, we will once we kind of start working and we're sort of in transition and and it's okay. And and I was sort of much less cautious, which has to do with, uh, you know, what I later came to reflect on by being transformed by hearing Luzanne's story um, was was a a sense of assuredness that I have that comes a lot from my own sort of class background of like, well, things are going to be okay. And, you know, you finished school and you're going to work and you're going to be okay and things are going to be okay. And I um, was leading with that perception, that ability to vision into the future that has its value, but also has some, some blind qualities to it, to things that I realized once we were able to actually communicate and bridge was um, much different from what he had come to expect growing up in Ecuador in a place where, I mean, it's not only like we're sort of navigating different expectations based on different class backgrounds. It's like even bigger than that. It's like Lucien is coming from a place where the, you know, from time to time, the entire economy collapses, (laughs) you know what I mean? And there's not that sense of assuredness. And so, so we started out sort of really judging each other's like priorities and and willingness to take risk or not willingness to take risk but in order to get through that rupture and stay connected which we were profoundly motivated to do we ended up like unpacking so much more than just like what are our priorities for finding a new apartment in this big expensive city we had to really unpack like what are our stories about about class, about housing and security. Yeah, and and, and what are the ways that we are sort of 
missing out on sort of the benefits of one another's perspective and and need our own perspectives need assurance to know that we're each included in the decision making process and it happens a lot in interpersonal relationships and in group processes where if you can't ever come to that place where you've like fully mutually taken each other in each other's concerns each other's perspectives and gifts and come into a story of us about where you're headed someone will mow the other people over or the other person over it happens all the time Mm -hmm. um and so i think we had a really early on a real commitment to not do that and it and it required us to slow way down and unpack things and we almost missed the chance to get (laughs) that apartment because of it but it's created a whole lifetime of of lesson and also a, a pathway to continually come back to that place of okay i'm judging you i don't understand your perspective here there must be something that i'm not taking into account that i'm missing here let me slow way down and listen and let me ask you to do the same for me Hmm. and we see groups do that and the ones that do that can really do that that can really come back to a story of us through conflict just always inevitably end up stronger Well, I really look forward. I know the practice that you're sharing with us around a a beginning exercise to begin to foster the possibility of radical inclusion is one that folks can listen to and follow along and practice for themselves on their own, uh, but then hopefully can bring as a resource also to their groups to create more capacity for that strengthened story of who we are together and, Mm -hmm. and strengthening of interdependence. So I want to thank you both just so deeply for sharing your wisdom. I know for folks who are listening, if you heard a a lot of terminology that you're like, whoa, like I feel like I need to listen to this five times. I I get feedback on that often, actually. A lot of listeners like you need to sit with something, right? And we just heard about, you know, a life's work of multiple folks in an hour, right? Um, So I encourage you to listen again. I encourage you to seek out information and resources and check out the upcoming trainings with Relational Uprising. And thank you for being with us. Thank you, Kate. You just heard a conversation between Lucien de Maris, Cedar Landsman, and Kate Warning. Remember to join our email list at healingjustice.org to stay in touch with us and share your thoughts as we begin to transition as a whole community into a period of reflection and planning for season two. Also, if you feel motivated to participate in our sustainability via sharing resources, you can do that by going to patreon.com slash healingjustice, and you can help sponsor a gift for one of the amazing guests that has come on this season by donating at the $8 a month level. Uh, We also welcome your participation at any level, including one-time gifts, and there's a link for that in the show notes. You can download the corresponding practice led by Cedar to learn an exercise about relational inclusion. I have used this exercise myself in moments where I am really, really struggling to perceive someone else's perspective when I'm feeling activated or triggered, when I'm just totally not understanding someone else's behavior. Um, to begin to shift my perspective and include where they're coming from uh, in my experience. And so I really highly recommend this practice. 
The links are in the show notes to find our social media. So stay in touch with us. We share some gorgeous stuff every single day, including we'll be sharing this week some memes from Cedar and Lucien. And a huge, huge thanks to Rachel Ishikawa for editing this episode and the mixing and production work of Zach Meyer at The Coal Room. Thank you for your commitment to building movements that liberate all of us, including yourself. We'll hear you next week.